but I asked my dad a few times and he said up until 85, 86, they thought that this would never end, that this would go on for even our lives. Maybe it would be a bit better and, and it, things would get better, but socialism and the Soviet Union, it, it's so strong and it's so big that, that there's no way that anyone can or anything can bring it down. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Ballant grew up in Hungary, right next to the border with Austria. Part of his family escaped in 1956 and went to Australia, and Balint's grandfather survived four years in a gulag camp. Would you like a Cold War Conversations coaster? It's easy. Just sign up to Patreon, and for the price of a couple of coffees a month, you'll be helping to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. Balance home village was a hotspot for escapes. Being so close to the border, the locals knew the area well and helped many people across for money. He tells the story of his father, who used to play right next to the fence with his friends often messing with the border guards. They could see tractors on the opposite side in Austria working in the fields. One quick note before we start, Ballant now lives in Ireland, hence the stronger Irish accent you will hear in the recording. I'm delighted to welcome Ballant to our Cold War conversation. Living close to the 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 border and also, you know, living in Hungary in early 80s what what sort of family stories are there that you can that you can share just first just about life in, in that region it, by the 80s it was it was not uh, nowhere near as strict as it used to be like in the 70s or the, or, the, or even even further back in the 60s so um obviously the the system was crumbling and and um they probably couldn't afford um to have the border protection they used to have. But there was still, I remember going to my grandmother's village and as we left um, the city, often on a bicycle, going to Toron, I remember the the, the guard post um, uh, outside the village. They they used to ID people going into that region, even up as, as late as 89, uh, 88, 89, when, when the whole thing ended. So that was that was interesting, and obviously as a kid, I didn't really understand why we had to stop and pull out the IDs, you know, going to visit my grandmother. But that was just part of life over there. Um, uh, you know, as a, as a kid, you don't really notice uh, anything weird about the system because that's where you grow up, and that's what's normal for you. But um, um, there was things obviously that stood out a bit. This, this was one of them. You know, why we always had to stop and. Um, Obviously, the 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 fact that Austria was so close, we we did get the chance to travel across the border quite a bit. While people from the other side of the country, not much. Uh, they had to obviously drive four hundred and fifty kilometers to get to the Austrian border. So we were the privileged ones, and we we, we had been a very long time up until eighty nine, because seventies and the eighties, people from my region, they did get the chance to to um to work there illegally and legally too um so there was always a bit more money in my region and people were a bit more well off than than the other side of the country and and my family uh benefited from that too um because we did have relations in the west and um and um that it was much easier to keep in touch with them from our region than it would have been from you know the eastern corner of hungary you told me earlier about a, a family story about your grandfather being brought to the police yeah, station. Yeah, that side of the family. My my dad's parents uh, lived in a place called Buchu. Buchu is a tiny village, literally at the border. So Buchu was the 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 gate to the west, and that's where my grandparents lived until the late sixties. And uh, my grandfather told me a story that one day he was out in the backyard and. 
picking potatoes and uh, a guard passed a few times and then eventually the guard went up to him and uh, brought him up to the police station and he was he was questioned um they found it suspicious that he was so close to the border for so long and uh, what he was doing there and all that eventually he cleared himself uh, admitting that he was picking potatoes so the guard let him go because he was picking potatoes so but it, it goes to show you the the mindset of of the drivers or the the guards everybody and everything was suspicious and the whole village was so close to the border that was literally sealed off from from the rest of the country and um it was very very difficult to get in yeah. there and when would that have been would that have been the 1950s or 60s this would have been the late 50s right, yeah right so after the uh, uprising when after the uprising yeah after the uprising obviously in 56 a lot of people left hungary i think it was close to 300,000 people in a week uh fled the country so um the borders were tightened and um they even put down um landmines and all that so um uh, they tried to stop people going across and it did work but obviously the locals uh, according to my grandfather and my dad as well the, the locals knew exactly where the mines were and uh where to walk across now obviously helping people and and bringing people across was very dangerous because you could have ended up in prison for years but people occasionally did help um others strangers coming and 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 trying to escape and and butcher was a an absolute hot spot for for escapees right right so the guards would have been even more suspicious of any anybody around because yeah, they knew it very was much a- so it was an escape area. I mean, your grandfather sounds like an incredible character um, because you, you'd mentioned to me that he, he'd fought in World War II as well. He wasn't much of a fighter. He was involved. He was there. He um, he was at the Ukrainian front. He was with the medics, so he never fired a gun, and he was very proud of that. Um, he was only 18 years old at the time, and um, he spent – closed five years um, in the Hungarian army. And then when he came back, he joined um, our district hospital and he he, he worked there for 52 right, years. Right, and I think you said he walked all the way back from the Ukraine. Yes, he escaped from um, captivity and he walked, he made his way home walking with, a, I think he was carrying a shovel or something, pretending to, to be working on the fields. <laughs> and then when and a, and a Russian a group of soldiers or anyone came, he just started picking the, the ground. And then he, that's how he made his way home. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, so that, that was your dad's father, wasn't it? And yes. your, your mother's father had a, uh, well, certainly a less fortunate time in, in Hungary. Yeah. He, my, um, grandfather on my mother's side was, um, he, uh, he owned a little ice cream shop and, uh, he, when he came back from the war, he had his own business and in the, in the Soviet system, that was straight away a bad thing that business owners were uh, picked out straight away. Um, the business was taken off him and he started working um, for um, a government establishment. And uh, shortly after, he uh, was gathered up with all the, um, the local men his age and he was shipped off to um, a gulag camp um somewhere um we, we don't know the exact location he never he never actually revealed the exact, lo- the exact location but he was somewhere uh, near the Ural mountains wow that's 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 some way and uh, I, th- I think you said that he he never sort of revealed what his experiences were like yeah he he passed away in 1979 so i actually never got to meet him but um According to my parents and my grandmother, he he very seldom mentioned what happened to him. Uh, I know he had an accident and he fell into a, a mine shaft, and um, he got pneumonia there too. He he lied in there for um, a, a couple of days or overnight, or I, I can't remember the exact story. But I know um, he um, he picked up a bad pneumonia after that, and then he he was uh, taken to uh, like the Gulag hospital, and then eventually. Three and a half years later, he um he was released by miracle. Right. Wow. Wow. So, just to, coming back to your 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 life, what what age did you start uh, school? I started school at six um, in nineteen eighty five. Okay. And what what was schooling like in Hungary in nineteen eighty five? 
I have very fond memories of of school. I think I think the big difference is to today's kids and and us in 1985 that we were real kids and we we enjoyed our childhood and and I think we we grew up slower than kids grow up uh, today and we had a lot of things to do a lot of summer camps and uh, and and a lot of weekend activities and and it was all free and uh, I can honestly say that um the the education system and the school system was fantastic right and was there much ideological influence in that that you recognized at the time do you know i i listened to a lot of your shows and a lot of people from from east berlin and um the former soviet union and and uh, poland and it was nothing like that in hungary we got very little of that i think hungarian communism wasn't as hardcore as it might have been in other parts of the eastern bloc we got some Soviet propaganda and obviously had to learn about the Red Army's glorious victories, but it was nothing, not ne- never too much. It was never too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Hungary really sort of kicked off that 1989 year of revolution in, in Eastern Europe um, yes. with the new government coming in and, you know, the the opening of the border. So I think, yeah, when your sort of period of growing up was certainly whilst Hungary was becoming more liberalised. Yes, yeah, certainly. And what what was your favourite subject at school? I loved geography. Why 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 was that? Um we had a good teacher and um I remember uh he used to tell us stories about travelling the Trans Siberian Railway. And I was just fascinated by those places and countries. And I used to love looking at the map and looking up places with weird names and, and, and far away places. And I actually went on to study geography in college and I became a geography teacher. I never actually went on teaching, but I, I am a qualified geography teacher. Right, right. I always love to hear those stories where people are inspired by their teacher to go and take a certain certain path. It's a, always, always mm. a nice story. Mm. Um, and you know as a child what were your favorite favorite books or tv shows or songs um i loved there was a lot of hungarian kids shows uh, at the time all government made and all financed by the probably some hungarian you know socialist youth propaganda movement it was all the same stories always like a naughty kid in the neighborhood who turned out to be good it's all it fit into that ideology, but obviously, as a kid, we we didn't realize that. We just we we, we watched these um, kids stars at the time, and uh, I I love that, and I also loved the uh, Night Rider. Um, now oh, the yeah, only thing with Night Rider was that we could only watch that um, on the the Austrian station, and um, I remember we had a black and white TV, and. Um, I didn't know what color the car was. I just guessed that it was black. It was in German as well, so I couldn't really understand. I, I have a bit of German, and I had a bit of German as a kid too, but I, I couldn't really understand it fully. And I remember somebody, one of the neighbor's kids, told me that the car was red. And on the black and white TV, you'd nearly believe it. It's hard to tell the difference between red and black. And uh, for years, I was 100% sure that, that the car in Knight Rider was red. <laughs> That's a that that that's a great story. So uh, you did so you tuned into Austrian TV for programs which didn't contain sort of communist indoctrination by the sound of it. Yes, and we recorded uh, movies too because the the likes of Rambo and 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 them movies were completely banned in Hungary at the time. So we we had a video recorder, the VHS tape recorder, and we used we used to record everything from. Austrian television. Right. And how easy was it to get hold of a VHS recorder? Um, it was almost impossible to get in Hungary. Or if you find if you found a shop selling it, it was crazy expensive. So um, we had to make our way across the border and uh, buy one in Austria. Okay. So, so unlike in uh, East Germany, the you could cross the border into, well, what I I term is democratic Austria. Um, uh, yes, yes, and that was an easy thing to do, was it? 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It was not easy up until 1984, 1985. Um, then there was two types of passports in Hungary. There was a, a passport issued for socialist countries only. And then it was a world traveler passport too. It's actually a different color as well. And I remember when my dad got the, the world traveler pass, passport and I was fascinated by it. And then in 1986, the government realized that um, it was no longer pos- possible or, or, or needed to keep the people locked in so they just issued the world travel passport for everybody so that's where uh we started making regular trips uh, across the border with our trabi right right oh so you had a you had a trabi yeah everybody had a trabi at the time okay. and so hungary didn't have any domestically produced cars no we um we had scoras and trabans and and all the the rest from the, the eastern countries right Right, and and when you're in Austria, could would they accept Hungarian currency? No, um, that's another interesting story. In, in, when the government lifted the ban on the the world traveler passport, they also introduced a new thing. I, I looked it up recently. It was in 1986 when um, they um, they allowed people to bring uh, 200 Austrian shilling worth of currency with them it was quite a, a bit of money it's, it would be the equivalent of maybe a couple of hundred pounds or maybe more three maybe 300 300 pounds um in today's money and uh, everybody over 18 so uh what every single hungarian family did at the time that uh, with the trabants the, the two parents up front the kids in the back and the grandmother in the middle in the back of the car so the grandmother counted as a obviously an adult as well so she could bring her couple of hundred shillings too and that's all together the 600 shillings and you might have a bit of money hidden in the kid's pocket too and um and you could buy a lot of things with that right right incredible incredible and and what did you think of austria did you notice a distinct difference when you when you crossed the border in oh absolutely the the second we crossed into austria um everything was clean everything was organized the grass was cut nice and neat um the shops were beautiful um every shop had the the automatic door when you step up the door and it opens up none of the shops had that in hungary uh a lot of different types of chocolates um as a kid i i i could stand there and just look at all the different flavors for for hours yeah yeah so presumably you really look forward to those trips oh absolutely yes and how how often was that? Was that once a month that would happen? Yeah, probably once a month. And then uh, definitely when there was a, a bank holiday in Hungary, then the entire city of Sombate would go to uh, Oberwart. Oberwart is the nearest uh, sort of town in Austria. It would be so maybe 30,000, 35,000 people. Um, so it's quite a, a, a big uh, place. And pe- people would cross over to... Um, to do the regular shopping, the, the, the items would be back in those days: bananas, coffee, chocolate, and um, then all the household items: uh, kettles and televisions and uh, and VHS recorders. VHS, <laughs> exactly. Wow, wow. So, um, I mean, presumably, you know, the you you were a member of the Young Pioneers as well. I was a very proud member. Yes. Right, so you had the scarf and everything. I had the scarf, I had a red scarf, I had a whistle, um, I still have it, um, a belt, 
with a nice logo on it, and my blue pants and my white shirt. Right, right. And uh, being a member of the Young Pioneers, what did that involve? Um, at the time, very little, because I joined in 1989, um, April, and that was almost the end of the school year, and and the the, the winds of change were hitting the school as well, and then and people knew it, it wouldn't last too long. So um, I remember one particular time we we went playing hide and seek, um, with our group, but that's pretty much. We didn't do much. To be honest with you, um, there was very little um, organized activities by the the the, the pioneer uh, or the pioneer movement. Right, right. So you 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 managed to get the uniform, and then it all sort of started. Yeah, and that was it, pretty much. Right, right. Well, still, that's pretty cool being a member of the Young Pioneers, I guess. Exactly. I still have my ID card. Fantastic. I think you sent me a photo of that. Actually. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, and you mentioned earlier you had relatives in in the West. What could you tell me about them? My mum, my mum's um, aunt, um, escaped Hungary in 1956 uh, with her family. Uh, she crossed over to Austria uh, after the October Revolution. Her husband was involved in uh, some anti-socialist activities and he was arrested and released and arrested and released. So eventually he decided to um, to leave. He left on his own. Then he paid someone off to, to bring the, the wife and the kids over too. So the, they went across the border in um, late October, early November 1956. Uh, they stayed in Austria for a couple of years in a refugee camp and they were shipped out to um, Australia. Wow. Wow. And did they ever come and visit you in Hungary? Yes. Um, they first came in 1968, already as Australian citizens. Um, a few interesting stories there, too, um, how the, the, the authorities handled them. Well, we like an interesting um, story, Balint, on the they, <laughs> I know. Uh, they had to uh, check into the local police station every single day. Wow. That must have been... Uh quite restrictive anyway yeah he was and um they 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 always tell me how insanely cheap it was uh to come to hungary they said uh, one one day's wage equaled um unlimited food in a restaurant for the whole family yeah yeah and were were they allowed near the border area or did you have to meet them away from the border area um with the, the people visiting the border area, you, as an Australian citizen, they were because they were from the West. Uh, but with other visitors, let's say if you have a cousin coming from the other side of the country, they had to apply for the permission and uh, you had to send out an official invitation letter and uh, get it stamped at the, the police station and then give it to the relative and then he could go and visit you in the in the village. But with them, it wasn't an issue because they were Australian citizens, so they were allowed to do a bit more than than your average uh, Hungarian citizen. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. And I mean, we we spoke a little bit earlier about life near near the border, and you you told me about these um, that people who lived in the area needed a a, a special ID. Um, yes. What knowledge do you have of escapes in that area? Because you, you did sort of mention it was a quite a hot spot in terms of people trying to um, get across the border. It was really. Um, Butchu was uh, quite a hot spot. Uh, so at the time, obviously after the 56 revolution, uh, people people saw that how bad communism was and how evil it could be and that. Uh, and um, despite the, the minefields and the, the heavy security, people did go across. And it, it was always with the help of the locals. No, there was normally that one guy in the, in the village that would take people across. And then, then when he was arrested, then someone else would take over. But um, yeah, the, the, obviously for people coming um, to the area, they had to have the border ID. So they, had to, they couldn't use public transport or they couldn't drive a car. They had to make their way through the forest and the fields at night to hide in the bushes and then go into the village and then look for that person and uh, hoping that they run into someone that, that would help them. Right. Right. And were these people Hungarians or were they from other Warsaw Pact countries? 
Hungarians mostly. Hungarians. Uh, I I actually when I, when I visited the the Iron Curtain Museum and the uh, the guy that runs the show there um, told us a, a few escape stories. I I asked the question if there was anyone ever trying to escape from Austria into Hungary, and everybody burst out laughing. And I was like, No, no, I'm 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 serious. Any 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 attempts from the West to come into? Has a good question. He says, um, Yes. He says, um, Soviet soldiers coming back from from um, Germany as late as the early 50s. Right. Soviet soldiers who... Who were in captivity oh, okay. and then were released and they stayed a couple of years and then they missed the family and they tried to make their way home to um, to the Soviet Union. Little they knew they'd be sent to the Gulag straight away, but they, they yeah. did try. yeah. Wow, that's that's it. That's interesting. Yes, but mainly, obviously, the, the the vast majority of these escapes were from from Hungary to Austria, and um, yeah, I've I've heard um, a lot of interesting and and sometimes funny stories too. Go on. <laughs> um, there was one particular one. <laughs> that was this uh, this guy from the other side of the country, and he he. Um, made his way across the country, he made his way to, to Buchu and then he found someone uh, helpful and nice to him and he explained that he he um, he wanted to go across to Austria and he was really nervous and very scared. So the locals told him, okay, listen, uh, you need to calm down a small bit because you're going to give yourself away too easily. So um, they gave him a little alcohol to loosen him up and they said, okay, listen, all you have to do is just go a straight line, go across the forest, and then as you go over the hill, the other side of the hill is Austria. As you go over, you see the lights and you just go into the first pub and then tell them you escaped and they take you to the police station and they register you. And you can speak Hungarian because because it used to be Hungary, that part of Austria was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So a lot of people across the border speak Hungarian. And I said, don't be afraid, just go there, tell them you escaped. So he took a bit more alcohol and then off he went zigzagging in the forest eventually got back to the same village went into the pub and uh he told somebody he escaped and uh, he was arrested on the spot wow. that's quite a sad yeah, story that, was one that. Of the unlucky ones and uh, yeah i mean the the border at this point was was barbed wire fences so the the locals knew where you could get under the fence or where there were gaps Yes, the locals knew. Uh, even the kids knew. My dad used to um, used to work for a local farmer uh, mining cows in the, the, the early 60s, like 62, 63, uh, over the summer. And he said that uh, they'd, be, they'd be there watching the cows in the field. And then they see the, the soldier, the border guard, going up to the tree, taking the key out of the tree back, open the gate. That was the electric fence, and it was like a normal fence, the, the double fence. So he open one of the fences, go in there, go for a walk, come back, put the key back in the tree back, and then off he goes again. So the kids knew exactly the key was in the tree back. All you have to do is go there, take the key out, open the gate, and you're free to go. But my, I, I often ask my dad, why didn't you go? I, I would have gone. You should have gone. And then my dad used to say, look, at the time as kids, we were taught at school that all these people that crossed the border, the criminals, they're letting their country down and then they did something wrong and then they, they have to escape and then yeah. and they believe yeah. this. What about the border guards? Was there any instant – there must have been instances of the border guards deciding. There was. There was one particular story I heard. It, it's in my dad's book as well. He um, he mentioned this story. That was, um, there was a guy, uh, a tractor driver, who, who came once a week to, um, to plod um, – Sure, the, the the field uh, it was nicely done between the two fences, so you can see the footprints. So he he'd go over that and nicely smoothen it, flatten it out, and on with his tractor. And there would be a guard standing behind him, watching him, so he won't just drive the tractor into the fence and knock it over and and go across. And um, one time, um, when he was going on the strip, the, the the soldier told him to stop because he had to go and um, answer nature's call. So the, the the guard stepped away, and then he jumped on top of the tractor, jumped the fence, and started running. And uh, obviously, uh, the the soldier was told to shoot. That's they had to shoot. He didn't shoot because they were friends. They used to do this every single week. 
So uh, together, so he um, he went after him and he escaped too. Right. So they both went over. Wow. Yeah, because he would have been arrested and prosecuted and put in prison, and uh, and he didn't want to do that. So yeah. he escaped. I heard another story. Uh, my my dad went to school with this guy. He was a couple of years older than my dad, and um, they were already in secondary school. So it would have been maybe 65, 66, mid-60s. Um, he was told by his mother that if you fail your exam, son, don't bother coming home because you'll be in trouble. So he took that so serious that uh, he went back to the village, filled his shirt with apples, and went up to the tree back, took the key out, opened the gate, walked across, came back from America in the mid-80s. <laughs> so there was a lot of people that... um from the air, not so much from Buchu, but that from, you know, it was such a small village that a few people escaped, but um, by the 60s, 70s, it was getting less and less. Yeah, yeah. Well, the security was getting stronger. Yeah, and then uh, things were getting better in Hungary too. Um, uh, there was no real need to, I mean, uh, people weren't living in this threatening, vicious dictatorship. It was a lot lot weaker than even must have been in Poland or East Germany. So um, people had uh, quite a bit of freedom in those villages, especially in the villages. So they were quite happy. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that that that's really interesting. So in in the early eighties, were you aware of you know, let's say, not what not to say outside of your family circle? Uh, yeah, obviously there was things. I, then one particular story that we had to learn Russian at the time, and we started that at the age of seven or eight. And I remember my dad told me, "Oh, it's such a silly thing. They should be teaching you German or English, not this silly language. Like you'll never use it." And I, I told the teacher, and uh, my dad was brought into the school, but there was no trouble about it. Nothing. They said, "Look, you shouldn't be saying things to the kid." But there was no police involvement or anything like that. But that was the only the only time where, when I said something I shouldn't have. But other than that, um, as I said to you before, I, he, he was in Hungary. He wasn't that strict. People were brave enough to to speak out and voice their opinions. There was no Stasi looking over um, you know, everybody's apartment. There was nothing like that in Hungary. Yeah, yeah. I guess if your dad had said something like that twenty years earlier, oh yeah, that would have been, been a, a different, different situation. Story. Yeah, and my dad told me that that this all the factories in the in in Hungary at the time and and the Eastern Bloc were connected with other factories. So you'd have like a sister factory somewhere else, and uh, every now and then you'd do a trip across and um, maybe the Soviet Union or Bulgaria, Romania, and then do like a gathering, mainly drinking, and. Um, Quite often, uh, this particular factory would get um, people from the Soviet Union or, um, or East Germany and or Lithuania, Latvia, the, those regions mainly. And my dad said that uh, they'd sit down and they they talk away to them. And then how, uh, it was incredible how cautious they were, like how how scared they were to talk about the system. And the Hungarians would say, oh, what do you think of this silly, stupid system? And, uh, you know, it would be so much nicer living in Austria and Germany. And they were just sitting there thinking oh my god what is he saying he could see the the scared faces and the concerned faces but there was nothing like that in hungary is we had a lot of freedom to compare to um other countries yeah no that again again that's really interesting because i think some people don't realize the contrast between some of the different warsaw pact countries yeah and you know hungary the the more i read about it you know it was obviously going to be the prime country to sort of try and get out of that soviet sphere of influence because it it had become more liberalized and it, it, it's interesting you saying how the standard of living improved so to the point at which you know less people wanted to leave yeah you know we had very little what but everybody had that same little everybody had that trabant car and the, the two-bedroom apartment and the holiday by lake balaton and that was enough. Uh, nobody was jealous. Uh, everybody was sort of equal, and and people were happy. Yeah, yeah. And and when I mean, you would have been very young at the time, so this might you might not be able to answer this. But when did you become aware of the political situation changing? 
I, I guess it must have been around about Young Pioneers time. Uh, when yeah, it would have been. Like I, I actually asked my dad because obviously, as you said, I, I, I was very young at the time, so I, I, I couldn't really fully understand what was going on. I know that my, my parents never talked about politics up until 87, 88, when it started and there was problems. And then that's where the, the country's economic situation was, that you know, the free education and the free healthcare, and, and, and that was taking its toll. And that, and I wouldn't say, you know, we, we were struggling, but certainly we, we felt that the times were getting tougher. And then I remember my mom crying a couple of times and, and thinking what we're going to do. And but I asked my dad a few times and he said up until 85, 86, they thought that this would never end, that this would go on for even our lives. And, um, and maybe it would be a bit better and, and it, things would get better, but socialism and the Soviet union, it, it's so strong and it's so big that, that there's no way that anyone can, or anything can bring it down. So, up until the late eighties, I think people were um, just sort of accepting the situation and knowing, okay, this this is what it is, and there's not much we can do. Yeah, yeah, and and in eighty nine, did you start to see more East Germans in the border area because of the possibilities of the border being opened? Yeah, but that was that was when um, things were already the the wheels were moving, and um, the wheels were turning. I, I remember when when these Germans came and they left all the cars behind. That's all I remember as a kid, the, the empty cars on the side of the road. <laughs> that's that's the sort of image I have in my head that uh, the empty Trabants and uh, whatever cars they had, mainly Trabants, um, packed up. And um, I, I know the pan-European picnic, that that thing, I, I knew the, the phrase, but I didn't have the foggiest idea what it meant. But... I always found it sort of cool to say it, and I heard it on TV the whole time. And Chernobyl was another thing. I used to hear you know, Chernobyl, and I was so, oh, it's just a nice-sounding word, but I didn't understand what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the 9th of November 1989 probably wouldn't have been a a big day for for Hungary. Can you remember, you know, hearing about, the fact that East Germany had opened its borders? I knew that the Germans were led across. I saw that on TV and I saw the, the happy faces and people running across. And I, I do remember watching that on the news. But I, again, I, I, I was 10 years old, so I didn't really understand up later on in my life. Uh, obviously, I did. But at the time, I, I, I didn't really understand what was going on. But um, I just found it interesting that why they're running, why they're so happy, you know. Uh, but Obviously, I understood later the how significant it was in bringing down the whole whole system, and I'm I'm actually very happy that Hungary was involved in it, and then Hungary probably put the last coffin in um in communism's or last nail in communism's coffin. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it, it was the first domino that you know set 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 off all, yeah. all the other ones. Um, and what changes did you see in Hungary? as you as you got older you know it's interesting because everybody i talk to think western people like my friends here in ireland or or other people i talk to from from western countries that they think it happened overnight so like on a monday monday morning we went to school and it was completely different it wasn't nothing like that like things didn't really change until probably 92 93 so it's it pretty much the same system and the same ideology. Like we oh, even right. had to keep studying Russian. Uh, even even that didn't stop. Uh, and it, it carried on. It, you can't just stop something and then and just wipe it off the board and say, yeah. you know, millions of people's lives at stake. And you have to you have to think before you. Obviously, the biggest problem in Hungary was the the the, the massive unemployment after. Um, the regime fell because you know communism's fundamental idea is to that everybody has to be employed no matter what like even if there's nothing to do in the factory you still have to go to work and you still have to be there and technically you're employed and um, there's no unemployment whatsoever and 
all these big corporations and, and American and English and German corporations bought off the Hungarian factories and they realized, okay, why do you have 14,000 people working here? I only need 2,500. So suddenly people started losing their jobs and my parents did too. And 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 suddenly it was over 2 million people unemployed. But that, that happened slowly. So it happened by, by – it reached its peak by, I think, late 92 when – there's over 2 million people unemployed. Right. And how did your parents cope with unemployment? Um, my parents were lucky. My dad landed a job almost immediately. Um, he, um, he, because he was involved in, in, in adult education, he, the local job center um, uh, took him on. So he probably unemployed for a week. Uh, so he went on and, and, and carried on with his work. And then he stayed uh, in journalism as a freelancer. Right, right. And it must have been, I mean, yeah, I d- it, it, as you've heard from my other episodes, you know, the the situation in East Germany was similar, but I think more sudden um, with the currency union with uh, West Germany and then, you know, the, the, the big German companies uh, moving in. But obviously, yes, that unemployment and uncertainty see um, with, with germany i i know uh, i know what you're saying it, 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 i think there was one main main difference in germany they got a lot of money and a lot of help from the west nobody helped hungary and there was no money coming in from anywhere so hungary was left on its own mm. and and that's what my dad always highlights that 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 concern that sort of a fear almost like you were longing for the, the old days. And even when the, the last Soviet soldier left the country, I think they didn't leave until 92, the Red Army. Uh, it wasn't like uh, people were all in the streets with champagne and, and jumping up and down. It was it was more like a, a sort of, almost like a, a depressed uh, thing for, for adults thinking, okay, who's going to protect us now? Yeah. Who's going to yeah. help us? If, if you know, the Soviet Union was always there, it was it was there when you had to blame somebody. It was there when you needed help, and, and it was always there. It was it was just there, and then suddenly there was nobody there, and nobody cared about Hungary, and and people were very scared and very concerned about the future. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a a, a perspective that people don't really think about. I think people are often fearful of change, but this was fundamental change in the way the country worked and whether you worked whether you you know whether you whether you had a job or not so it's it's really interesting hearing um that perspective it what? is really and and i think i think people living in the east always have this dream about you know living in the west and being free and enjoying freedom and but when you're given that freedom, it's another story then, you know, you sort of don't appreciate it and you don't know what to do with it because I'm free now and you're free. And do you really enjoy, I mean, you know, it's not like every single morning you wake up and you're like, oh, yes, I'm free. I'm in the free world. After a while, it becomes your your everyday thing and you just don't care. And and I think looking out your nine-story apartment block in, in Somerte, looking across Austria, seeing those lights and thinking, oh, you know, I'd love to be there. I'd love to live there. It was so cool to drive a Toyota, not a Trabant. And, but, you know, when you actually get that Toyota and when you when you live there, it's not much different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting the perspective you, you gave about the, you know, the economy getting better and, and people not leaving and being content with a Trabant job, healthcare, you know, that, 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 that side of things and i think you know i and i've heard this said before about you know freedom you can be free to travel the world but if you haven't got a job and you haven't got the money exactly it really count for much exactly um what, what are your fondest memories of hungary during the communist period everything that in my childhood was was just so nice and and, and so good to remember um the holidays at Lake Balaton, my dad used to get 10 days every year from through his factory job and um, all the other factory workers and their kids. It was all the same generation. So there would be hundreds of kids my age and um, everything was free or cost very, very little. Um, 
uh, I just enjoyed being involved in um, every school activity and hanging around with the local kids. We were a generation called uh, the Keyers. I don't know if you ever heard the phrase. No. The the Keyers kids. That was the every key every every kid had a key around their neck <laughs> uh, because the parents were working. Uh, during the summer so the kids would be at home in the apartment blocks and so the, the the mother would put the key on a little piece of rope and put it around your neck so you don't lose it so we are the keyers kids and that's, right. that's how that's how our generation was called and it was all people born in the the late 70s early 80s and every apartment block had somebody that was into um fish tanks or you know or you name it like every apartment had some something else to offer so we used to go to visit each other all the time and there was a real camaraderie between the parents as well there was always this guy that could fix your car or that guy that could come and fix your coffee table or and people did help, help each other and there was a real sense of camaraderie at, at, in those days and that's that's what i i sort of miss these days yeah yeah no can I can understand that and what would you say are your worst memories of that period I didn't really have any as as I was very young but thinking back obviously what happened to my grandfather would be definitely top of my list uh, it, it it shows the the evil side of of communism and how bad it could be and um and uh, it shouldn't have happened and uh, it shouldn't happen to anyone and um obviously that you know you can enjoy as a kid you can enjoy a lot of things but when you look at the bigger picture then you realize that how evil and how how bad it was there's one thing that uh, that uh, i always notice when i talk to people from the west and um look i'm not a a fan of communism or or that system at all but um I always said if I was an adult at the time, I would have been the first one to escape. But um, there's a lot of things that we did enjoy, and, and it wasn't all just evil and bad. And, and when, when people from the West uh, talk to me and, 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 and tell me things, and, and I always argue my case that, no, no, it wasn't that bad at all. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't all that evil. It wasn't like, you know, it was shooting at people on the street. or th- There's certain things that were much, much better than, than than no and and that's what i always want to tell that they don't just see it as a as an evil system there was a lot of good in it too yeah and i think you've you've described that well with uh you know that you describe in the community spirit that there was um then and and you're also describing a safer environment i mean there's not many places now parents now that would let their kids out with just a key around their neck to- exactly but you know that that had a lot to do with there was, there was very little crime. It was a police state. Uh, it was it, the police had power. You respected a police officer. There was no way you would have talked back to a police officer because you would have got a, a slap across the face. That did happen. I I saw that happening, especially at football games. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to soccer with my dad every single weekend, and um, but people people had more respect for for uh, for the law. And and for for each other too, but um, yeah, definitely. Um, that, that that's that's another thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's probably true in the West. Certainly, sort of fifties, sixties period. There, you know, there would have been respect for um, the law, and I think it's it's also interesting. You know, you you're saying that you know whilst it was a police state of sorts. Um, there's a lot of similarities, you know, people can hear about their uh, childhood and, and growing up in the descriptions that you've given there, albeit you're right next to a barbed wire fence, you know, that is the border between Hungary and another country. But yeah, um, there's lots of similarities there. Do you know, us kids growing up, we were actually, we were really privileged uh, in that area because I, I remember uh, Austria had a flea market in the, the 80s and um all the people from somewhere they would go to the flea markets and you could pick up a mountain bike or a BMX bike or a or a skateboard for the equivalent of maybe five or six pounds that today's money so for, for nothing. The Austrians gave them away for for nothing. But for us to get a BMX bike from the West, everybody had one. Yeah. Um because it was so cheap, but nobody as, as you were getting further from the Austrian border into Hungary, nobody had it. So I remember like 
relatives visiting us from from the the midlands and, and coming over and saying oh my god where did you get this bike Joe, it was a big thing for him but it was nothing for us so in that western corner life was always different always from from the minute it started in 1945 up until the point it ended we were always the privileged ones yeah yeah well Bellin, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story with me tonight. That, that, that's been really interesting and, and really insightful. My pleasure. I do hope you enjoyed Balint's story. We have further photos and information in our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 85. This will also show as a link in some podcast apps. Don't forget, if you'd like to get that Cold War Conversations coaster and keep us on the air, head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Or again, click on the link in your podcast app. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information